You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Health Podcast. And I have uh, Dr. John Peaver. Uh, he's a professor at the University of Toronto in the area of uh, systems and cell biology. He also is a VP of research at the Canadian Sleep Society. And we're going to be talking about uh, the neurobiology of sleep, sleep disorders, et cetera, and uh, what happens with REM sleep, you know, narcolepsy, and a few more sleep issues. So, John, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, uh, quick definition. What is neurobiology for people that don't know? Uh, neurobiology is, is a scientific way for uh, understanding how the brain creates behavior. So how you know different parts of the brain cause different behaviors. So in in the case of what we're going to talk about today is you know, what parts of the brain get you to go to sleep and what parts of the brain get you to go to get you to wake up. And you know that would be the the best way to think about neurobiology. Yeah, and sleep seems to be very uh, mental. You know, for instance, if you're laying there trying to go to sleep. It seems to be counterproductive and, you know, sleep seems to be like, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're asleep. You don't know exactly when you fell asleep and the next thing you know, you're awake if things go well. So uh, I guess mentally it's interesting to see what go- what happens. So do you have any insight into that? What happens when you lay down in the bed and, you know, what stages you go through until the moment you fall asleep mentally? Well, I, I, th- I think the way that, 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 that the way I, I think about how um, we fall asleep is, you know, really in the context of, of, of your audience, the best way to think about it really is that if you divided the brain into sort of two systems, one is the group of cells in different parts of the brain that keep you awake and alert, and then there's a whole other system that people don't necessarily ever think about, and that's the part of the brain that actually causes you to to go to sleep. And and those, you know, it's the push and pull between those two systems uh, that keeps you either awake or asleep. And as you're falling asleep, you can think of it as the the waking side of the brain is slowing down and the sleep side of the brain is speeding up until you get to that critical point where the wake side is actually stopped and it's the, the sleep side of the brain that, that's in full tilt. And I, when I mean sides, I don't mean left and right. I'm just conceptually talking about the fact that there are systems in the brain, cells, connections between them that keep you awake, and then they're equally a whole uh, system of cells uh, that, that get you to go into sleep. Huh. So um, falling asleep is a transition from 
you know, it may not even be an area, but a certain functioning of the brain to another set of functioning. And I guess that takes time. Yeah. There's no one part of the brain that causes you to be awake and there's no one part of the, the brain that causes you, you to be asleep. But it is, it's that sort of delicate balance between those two, two brain functions, the waking function and the sleeping system that, that uh, it's where you're in that sort of, as we say, no man's land when you're, you're sort of half awake and half asleep. It's, it's those two systems are kind of operating at the same time almost. So what's been your particular focus of, uh, of research as it pertains to sleep? What are you looking at? Well, in my lab at the University of Toronto, we're, we're really focused on, on REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, or it's also called dreaming sleep. And what we're, we're most interested in is, is really understanding what parts of the brain actually um, push you into this, this stage of sleep. So some of your listeners may be aware and others may not that there's, there isn't just one type of sleep. There's actually two types of sleep. So one is slow wave sleep, or it's called non-rapid eye movement or deep sleep. And then the, the second stage, w- w- which my lab is interested in, is that really remarkable stage of sleep where you're dreaming and hence called dreaming sleep. Um, and, you know, y- your brain is remarkably awake-like. Uh, when you're dreaming, um, and if you if you record different parts of the brain, they actually look more awake uh, than they do when you're in deep or non-REM sleep. So that stage of dreaming sleep is what we're really interested in, simply because it's a remarkable stage where the brain is extremely active. And from sort of an energy standpoint, your brain is actually using almost as much energy when you're in dreaming sleep as when you're in uh, alert waking. And, you know, the fact that your brain is sort of offline, but it's so busy at the same time is, is what made us very curious as to why would the brain be so busy when you seem to be doing nothing during this stage of sleep? Well, I guess I've heard, you know, it's consolidating memories and learning and things like that. I mean, what, what's your insight into why it would be so busy? Well, I think it's a really important uh, question. I mean, I think one of the areas that, that we're really starting to gain some insight in is there's, there's a system in the brain that is actually kind of like little tiny rivers. And those rivers flow out from the inside of the brain to the outside of the brain, and, and they actually remove waste uh, uh, from the brain. And so during the day, you can sort of think of your brain as, you know, producing a lot of waste through the, you know, from being very busy and thinking and doing things. And then when you go to sleep, one of the, the new ideas in the field is that, that the brain is actually one function uh, of sleep is to get rid of that waste that you produce while you're awake, and, and that's what is actually going on during the brain during sleep. And this is an area that's it's really just in its infancy, but think it uh, provides a, a critical uh, insight into to what the brain might be doing during sleep. Another um, area of research that's just come out in the last week or so is that during sleep, your, the, your DNA um, in your brain cells actually might be being repaired. So the damage done during the day might be being repaired during sleep. So I guess at night, it's like New York City, the garbage trucks come in and pick up all the garbage people threw out on the curbs and take it away. So same thing with the brain. Yeah, that's a that's a great analogy. You know, one of the one of the ideas is that, you know, you can use another analogy is that during the day, the roads are really, really busy. And, and you know, all the use from all the cars passing uh, down those roads causes damage to the roads. And, you know, you can't really repair them when it's a busy traffic hour. So a lot of road work happens at night when things are quiet. And, and so that analogy is sort of like the brain. So the cells in the brain are very busy during the day, keeping you awake and alert and doing all the things that allow you to live your life. But at night, some of those pathways and cells 
slow down. And the idea is that this might be an opportune time to repair them. So what order do things happen when you first fall asleep? And does that order just repeat multiple times through sleep cycles? Like what are the, the stages and what order do they come in? Well, as we discussed earlier, there are, there are in fact multiple stages of sleep. I think for the in the context of this conversation, we should just keep them that there are two primary types of, of sleep. So that slow wave or non-REM sleep and then REM sleep, there's in fact various levels of each of those if you want to subcategorize them. But you used an important term, which was sleep cycle. So you, in fact, you just don't put your head on your pillow and then go boom in and have a random um, mixture of non-REM and REM sleep. You actually go through a very characteristic cycle where you enter into light sleep and then it becomes slightly deeper and then deeper and then you enter into slow wave sleep. Then you emerge back into almost a waking state and then you plunge back into sleep and then this cycle repeats uh, over the course of the night so that you, you know, the that you get the normal uh, stages of sleep that you have. But I think one of the important ideas um, in the field is that the beginning of the night is really populated or uh, slow wave sleep is the predominant type of sleep. And so it's often thought that if sleep is really serving um, a recuperative process, that and because slow wave sleep is is happening early in the night, it seems like that that slow wave or deep sleep might be the most restorative sleep. And a lot of evidence seems to suggest that may well and be it may well in fact be the case. Well, what's happening in each stage? When is the cleanup happening? Well, I think it, that, that's actually a very difficult question to answer because yeah, you have to really look at a whole uh, range of body functions. So certainly in the brain, we'll just focus on that, I think would be the most useful is the, the, the way we can tell whether a person's in deep sleep or in slow wave sleep and REM sleep is, is the brain produces very clear si- signatures of electrical activity. And those signatures um, are stem from a coordinated effort of different parts of the brain, different cells in different parts of the brain that are having conversations in a very specific way to produce those signature uh, electrical activity activity or brain waves as we often refer to them um, that you can measure. So if you if you were to record someone, um, the activity of the brain looks very different. Um, the electrical activity of the brain or brain waves looks very different during um, deep sleep or slow wave sleep than it does, for example, during REM sleep. And so we can we can certainly look at th- that type of activity to, to see what's going on, at least in the brain. Um, we certainly know that during REM sleep, that the, the, the sleep stage that we study, it's a remarkable phase because a lot of things are going on in the body. So REM sleep is called rapid eye movement sleep because the eyes are moving back and forth. So I'm sure if you've ever had a little, had a dog or a cat or a baby or slept beside someone, you can often tell when someone's in dreaming or REM sleep because their eyes are moving back and forth. And the other curious thing they do is they seem to have these tiny little twitches. So even though they're the the muscles of the body during REM sleep are uh, effectively paralyzed. Um, uh, the, the, the muscles of the hands and legs and, and eyes and, and lots of different parts of the musculature of the body actually will engage in these tiny little twitches. The same, you know, one of the other things that, that happens during sleep is that blood pressure changes remarkably between different sleep states. Um, so in, in slow wave sleep, blood, blood pressure is very low and steady, but as soon as you enter from slow wave sleep into uh, dreaming or REM sleep, blood pressure can, can increase and it can fluctuate, and those fluctuations are often coincident with those muscle twitches that I, I just described. So again, what is the order? Does REM happen before deep sleep or after 
You know, what's the order of the stages? So REM is actually extremely tidy sleep state in that um, when you fall asleep at the beginning of the night, you spend about 90 minutes in slow wave or deep sleep. And it's not until 90 minutes after you've been asleep that you have the first cycle of REM sleep. And that first cycle of REM sleep is relatively short. And then after that short REM cycle of REM sleep is over, you enter back into, into deep sleep or slow wave sleep again. And then at another defined period later, it varies between people. It can be about an hour. You'll have another episode of REM sleep, and it's a little bit longer than the first. And then you'll go back into slow wave sleep, and then you'll have another episode of REM, and it's a little bit longer than the first episode. So REM sleep is really interesting in that it doesn't happen at the beginning of the night, at least in healthy people. Um, although changes in the timing of when, when REM sleep occurs is actually an index of uh, if someone's uh, has a certain sleep disorder, um, but it's very tidy in that it it starts at about 90 minutes after you fall asleep, and then each cycle that occurs of REM sleep after gets a little bit longer, and, and then you end your night, in fact, uh, in, okay. in REM sleep. So we don't know when the, um, the shrinkage of the brain tissues, you know, and the cleanup of the brain occurs, like, has it been observed all throughout sleep or only in certain parts? Well, it, yeah, no, we haven't been able to... Um, Technically, that's a very difficult thing to do to measure the, the, the way the brain gets rid of this waste. So at the moment, most of, of the research is, in fact, it's only been done in animals. And um, it's been using techniques that are very hard to, to do when, when an animal is behaving normally. So most of it's been done under uh, using anesthesia. And different anesthetics can actually produce um, brain activity that looks and body activity that looks like a slow wave or deep sleep. So it's it's simply been inferred, in fact, at this point that the brain is is cleaning uh, waste up during sleep. Um, but there there's good evidence that it's certainly happening during sleep. But what stage of sleep, as you point out, is really unclear at the moment. Hmm. So there's is there evidence that the brain does this, or you said it's inferred? Well, part of it is inferred, and part of it is is uh, there's evidence to, to to demonstrate that it's happening in sleep. But as I said, it's not it's not clear what type of sleep it's happening in. It's only been looked at broadly um, across an entire evening, and so it, whether the waste removal is happening during slow wave or deep sleep or REM sleep is really un, it's unsure. But it's certainly happening during sleep. But it's it's been difficult with the technical limitations that we have before us to determine what type of sleep uh, it's occurring in. If I had to give a guess, I, I think it would be happening during both uh, types of sleep. That, so the deep sleep is when things are calm, cool, and quiet. But the, as I mentioned before, REM sleep is really quite interesting because the body, the brain becomes very busy, blood pressure changes, blood flow changes, energy changes. So, you know, it's probably the the conversation between non-REM sleep or deep sleep and REM sleep that allows the effective removal of this of, of the waste. And so rather than thinking that, that it's just happening during one type of sleep, it's probably the, the continuity between the, the occurrence of the tip, different types of sleep that allow the effective removal. It seems like what's happening is just speculation and not even scientific language, but it seems like what's happening is the brain is... Uh, it, it seems like a gigantic ship or something. It's being tested. You know, the systems are turning on and off. You know, garbage is being cleared away. Everything's being prepped, I guess, for the next uh, the next day, it seems like. Maybe that's why the brain goes through these cycles, you know. There's a cleaning period, then there's like, okay, let's run the brain and, you know, 
test it and see what's going on, make sure everything's good. Then we clean some more, then we run it some more. That's just my, again, my feeling I get when you talk about this cycle. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things that um, I think is important is that you know you 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 develop some ideas based on information that you heard, and and I think really that's what scientists do as well. I mean, it's it's really quite intuitive that that sleep is important and that sleep is probably restoring some damage that's been done to the brain and to the body. I might add uh, during the day. So, you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest, for example, that the immune system might itself be repaired during sleep and that, you know, as, as you navigate through your day, you, your, your immune system gets tired, if you will, and it needs to rest. So there's, there's lots of evidence certainly to suggest that sleep is, is, is restorative in nature. Um, the questions are really what, what's being restored, but from my perspective is how it's being restored um, is really the critical question. I think, I think the consensus in science and, you know, it's intuitive. You know that a good night of sleep cures everything. The Irish have a fantastic proverb that goes, there's nothing that a good laugh and a good night of sleep can't cure. Um, you know, even Aristotle 2000, over 2000 years ago remarked on the benefits of sleep. So I think we, we've come to an idea that, that there's no doubt that sleep is beneficial, but it, you know, a scientist's job is to really try and understand what, what the specific benefit is, and more importantly, how how are those benefits uh, that occur during sleep occurring? So you had mentioned memory, and that sleep is good for memory. Many of my colleagues um, spend an enormous amount of time trying to understand how sleep makes memory better, because we know that a few nights of bad sleep or even a few hours of bad sleep can impair your ability to remember what you learned the day before. Um, and conversely, it, you, you don't perform as well on various tasks that you have to do during the day when you're really tired. But the question as a scientist is, how does that actually happen? So a lot of people are really rigorously studying how cells in the brain um, put, put memories together and, and how sleep impacts the ability of those cells in the brain to put those memories together. Well, how have you, I mean, you know, I've just been talking about the brain. I would think the entire body, I mean, every cell in your body goes through stages and cycles as you sleep, not just your brain cells. I mean, is there evidence for that? Have people observed, you know, what's the kidney doing? What are uh, skin cells doing? What are other organs doing while you're sleeping? Yeah. And for, you know, this is an incredibly important question and I, and one that um, I feel is underrepresented um, in the current client, in, in some of the current research um, going on in the field of sleep. So a colleague of mine, um, you know, about 20 years ago, wrote a, a an, a, an article that was titled Sleep is of the Brain, by the Brain, and for the Brain. Um, and I think the title of that article is, is, is quite misleading. There's no doubt that sleep, that, that your, your brain is generating the behavior of sleep. But as you point out, there's also no doubt, in, at least from some of our own evidence in my lab, that the body, the body itself benefits from sleep. So, for example, one of the first things that most people We'll notice if you watch someone fall asleep is what happens. Their eyes get heavy. And if they're sitting, for example, in the airplane, you probably all watch someone falling asleep on the plane. Their head drops down. What, what's happening is that as you enter into sleep, the muscles of your body themselves relax. And that's one of the critical elements of, of sleep is that the, the, the muscles that you use during wakefulness relax when you sleep. And so some of our work is really 
you know, gone against the idea that sleep is of the brain, by the brain, and just for the brain, but is looking at the benefits of sleep for the body. And so we find that, you know, muscle cells, for example, if they've been damaged during the day, and then you don't have a good night of sleep, that those cells don't have the same capacity to repair themselves. And so, um, you know, there's no doubt that sleep is also for the body. But as you point out, you know, you asked about the kidneys, for example, very little information um, about how does does kidney function itself uh, differ from the day versus the night. And I think this is really a, one of the futures in sleep is to continue to recognize that sleep is really important for the brain, but also to really start probing and asking questions about how is sleep beneficial for the body and what are some of the benefits that, that a good night of sleep allows you to have. Yeah, I wondered how light, you know, being exposed to light at different parts of your sleep cycle affects you. And, you know, not just the eyes, but it just seems like the entire body has light sensors. And this is just anecdotal from, you know, my sleep. But uh, it seems like, you know, covering the eyes helps if it's bright outside or bright in the room. But, you know, being in a dark room works better for some reason. So, um, again, I'm just guessing, but it seems like the entire body or a lot of big parts of the body have uh, light sensors that can affect your, your sleep. Oh, there's, there, that, that's very clear that, that light has an enormous impact on the sort of the rhythms of sleep and wakefulness. So, I mean, you know, there are two times of the year where, you know, we, we change the clock ahead and back. And for a lot of, a lot of people, the change in the, the light rhythm is, is, is quite, has a, a very significant impact on your ability to, for example, fall asleep. So if you're trying to fall asleep in a bright room, the light is actually trying to keep your your brain awake. Um, and, you know, dark is, is definitely associated with, at least in humans, promoting sleep. Of course, bear in mind some animals sleep in the light. Um, but, you know, I think it, it, there isn't any doubt that light plays a major role in sort of consolidating the rhythm of sleep into a day and a night cycle um, and that that trying to promote light during the day is very useful in staying awake and dark during the night um, again is very useful at helping promote sleep um, any experimentation of uh, people being in darkness the entire time they sleep or people uh, being exposed to light you know during their sleep period or sleeping late and you know like like let's say you go to bed at uh, you know, three or four in the morning and you get up at noon, you know, it's almost impossible to not have more light than someone else that would sleep from midnight to eight, let's say, entering the room. And I wonder what that does to your sleep. Uh, well, uh, yeah, you, you know, one of the, uh, I'll sort of give a, a slightly different answer to that question. And one of the things that has been become extremely concerning, still in the same vein as the question, is the use of, of you know, cell phones, um, and, you know, computer screens and tablets. Um, so a lot of people have started to routinely, if they wake up in the middle of the night, they're curious about well, what time is it or, you know, maybe they're checking their email for some reason if they have an important email. And it's, it's not just the light itself, but particular wavelengths of light that seem to be particularly uh, stimulatory or they... Uh, specific wavelengths of light actually wake the brain up um, more than others. And so, you know, using tablets and, and cell phones, um, it provides the brain a, a sort of a new unpatterned source of light. So the human brain is, is really quite adept 
um, at, at, you know, experiencing the context of light during the, the day and dark during the night. Um, and the introduction of technologies through, you know, smartphones and computers has really been messing around with when the brain sees light. And we know that light has a profound effect on interrupting sleep. You, you alluded to people who are shift working perhaps where, you know, um, they're, they're trying to sleep until noon because perhaps they worked all night. I mean, there are sort of two competing, competing issues there. One is the light that is associated with the day when they're sleeping. But the brain has a built-in um, clock, if you will, that, that sort of ticks away. And it's really hard to change the, the timing of that clock. And, and so you're, you're, you know, you're trying to work when your brain is naturally asleep. You can certainly do it. But it's really difficult because you've got the, the competing issues of light during the day when you're trying to sleep. And then you have this clock that's saying, well, you shouldn't be sleeping now. You should be awake. And this is another really important area in science and medicine is understanding how shift work um, is, is impacting human health. Um, because we know that moving sleep can't just move all over the place. You just don't get to sleep when you'd like to because of that, that clock, that built-in in brain clock. Um, and, you know, trying to sleep at the wrong time of the day may not be as beneficial, actually, as sleeping at the right time of the day. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, for instance, I've been going to sleep at three or four for 20 years, you know, and I get up at like 11 or noon and it's just my schedule. And, uh, you know, when I go on vacation, I'll go to bed earlier and get up earlier and it feels pretty good. But I slip back and I just wonder, um, I, I don't know, I don't know if I should just say, oh, it's my chronotype, I can't help it. But it just seems like I'm uh, I'm pulled towards doing that and other people are like oh my god that's horrible but yeah see i I, i'm like you i'm on the opposite end i'm i'm wide awake at you know 4 35 in the morning is it i'm ready to go but by 9 p.m i i um have some pretty hard brain fog um so and you know genetically people there's there's really solid evidence to suggest that People sort of have a g- genetic predisposition to to be an early bird or 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 a, a, a night owl, um, and so there there is really good difference. I mean, it's shiftable; you can move it around, but you know the propensity or your, your brain seems to, for whatever reason, work best early in the morning or late in the evening. And you know, it's 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 best if you can work around what works best for you. But unfortunately. Um, you know, sometimes when uh, you have to be at work at 8 a.m., but you are, uh, you know, not a morning person, it, it, it really is tough on on uh, people. Yeah, definitely. But I, actually, it's almost at the point where I could call you and say, hey, I'm going to bed. You take over and you get up. <laughs> that, that's actually how, how modern society works, luckily. So, you know, it's like in the ER, you've got, you know, shift one and shift two and uh it's good when shift two comes on because shift one's pretty tired but uh it would be kind of cool if we could do share through uh brain connectivity uh that ability so what's um you know we've been going all over the place but in REM sleep you said you've been studying it quite a bit what what interesting things have you uh figured out about REM sleep that aren't uh just you know maybe commonly known what kind of intricacies have you seen so one of the the we're sort of interested not just in how the brain generates healthy normal REM sleep. Um, we're interested in that question because there are two primary sleep disorders that result from a breakdown in the circuits or the brain parts that get you to go to normal REM sleep, and those two sleep disorders are narcolepsy 
um, and the other is REM sleep behavior disorder. So um, narcolepsy is, is, many people will think of narcolepsy as being the sleep disorder where you're persistently sleepy, and that is sort of the, the most commonly known um, symptom of narcolepsy is someone who's just, you know, chronically sleepy. And we're not talking, you know, a little bit sleepy. We're talking the type of sleepiness you'd experience if you'd been awake for two solid days sleepy. Um, so people with narcolepsy, we think that the parts of their brain that generate healthy REM sleep actually um, seem to misfire um, and they may actually appear during uh, wakefulness. So, you know, part of the concept would be that the sleepiness that people with narcolepsy experience is, is, is the, the parts of the brain that are generating REM sleep coming online at the wrong time. So what, what my group has really been doing is looking not at that part, actually, but the other thing that people with narcolepsy experience is a symptom called cataplexy, and that's where you're awake, but all of a sudden your muscles simply fall asleep. So people with narcolepsy have this symptom of cataplexy, and you know they'll, they'll, be, they'll be doing an activity, and the next thing they know, they have this episode of cataplexy, their muscles all relax, and they slump over, and they're unable to move. They're not asleep, they're awake. And why I bring this up is really? that it's our idea that the part of the brain that causes your muscles to relax during REM sleep switches on while you're awake and causes cataplexy. How long does the cataplexy last? Hopefully not more than a second. Otherwise, it, it'll be horrible to be paralyzed multiple times a day every day. Um, cataplexy can last from seconds to minutes. Um, so if, if some people will have hundreds of episodes a day, where they can last from, you know, anywhere between three seconds to a minute. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a very extreme scenario. And then for, for really remarkable reasons, some people may only experience cataplexy, you know, people with narcolepsy may experience it, you know, once a year. Um, but, but when people with cataplexy, when people experience cataplexy, it's, it's extraordinarily debilitating. For example, you wouldn't want a brain surgeon experiencing an episode of cataplexy in the middle of surgery, or you wouldn't want your kid's school bus driver to have a, an episode of cataplexy while driving a bus. So as you point out, it, it's really quite a devastating symptom when it occurs because the you know, completely stops ongoing normal behaviors. And you can either just feel extraordinarily weak and unable to move, or you can physically collapse on to the ground. Yeah, and it's sad because, you know, everyone makes fun of people with narcolepsy or, you know, culturally it's seen as like, I don't know, the people are not getting enough sleep or, you know, they're kind of, I mean, I mean, I guess they're kind of laughed at, but it's a really serious thing it sounds like. Yeah, there's a... If you if you tar I've I've spoken to many uh, people with narcolepsy and you know there there's the normal range of responses. Some people are very empathetic to to the disorder um, and to the symptoms, but a lot of people you know you talk to with narcolepsy people will say, "Come on, you're just you're just lazy. You're not you're just not trying hard enough." And I, I think what what I I you know it, it, I'm not sure if it helps, but I explain to people who don't understand narcolepsy that people with narcolepsy, they lose a specific cell in their brain that causes this disorder. And so we're talking about, you know, degeneration of a, a very specific group of cells in the brain that cause uh, this disorder. So we can take, for example, in my lab, we can genetically engineer an, a mouse so it can express those cells that are lost in narcolepsy. And that very same mouse will all of a sudden develop all the symptoms of narcolepsy. So I think what's important 
to recognize is that number one, we've identified what causes narcolepsy and it's a real tangible change in the structure of the brain in a specific group of cells. And then I think when people understand that, they have a lot more empathy and understanding for people living with narcolepsy, that it isn't just a disorder or a condition of, you know, lazy, sleepy people, um, that it's a real tangible brain disorder. Yeah. Well, in, all right. So in addition to narcolepsy, again, what, what kind of REM disorders or what kind of interesting facts have you learned about REM sleep? So I think um, although our work looking at, at how REM sleep and narcolepsy and cataplexy are, are related, the, the work we're, we're really pushing forward um, with now is, I, I think, going to be uh, in the future extremely important because what my cl- clinical colleagues have found is that people with a disorder um, called REM sleep behavior disorder, and this is this is a condition that's kind of the opposite of of cataplexy. It's when you're in in dreaming sleep or REM sleep, your muscles are normally paralyzed. But in people with REM sleep behavior disorder, that lack of muscle paralysis is erased. And that might sound trivial, but it's not because it allows the dreaming brain to become active and to move your body. And so what people with REM sleep behavior disorder experiences is, is dream enactment. And it's usually extremely violent to the point that the most Ooh. common reason for being diagnosed with REM sleep disorder is visit to the emergency room because you either punch the person you're sleeping beside so hard that you broke their jaw or that you threw yourself out of bed and to a closet door, for example. Those are common scenarios in people with REM sleep behavior disorder. While dream enactment is kind of scary and, and it gets you to the hospital, the really concerning element clinically is that virtually all those people will eventually develop um, a brain uh, degenerative disorder uh, with Parkinson's being the most common. So virtually 100% of people with REM sleep behavior disorder will at some point um, uh, develop a neurodegenerative disorder like Parkinson's disease or Lewy bodies with dementia. So why I think this is so important is what it's telling us is that the changes in REM sleep are the very first symptom of uh, ensuing uh, brain degeneration that underlies, for example, Parkinson's and dementia. And so we view this as going to be uh, the best predictor for who will develop uh, a degenerative disease in the future. Hmm. Okay, very interesting. What, what is, um, I've heard of alpha wave intrusion. What is that? Alpha waves are um, a type of brain wave um, that is is a fast frequency brain wave that we associate with occurring during wakefulness. Um, and so the, the very activated, busy brain, so you're driving down a busy freeway, um, there's lots of things going on, you have lots of alpha waves in your brain because your brain's busy paying attention. Um, I'm pretty sure where you wanted to, to chat about is, is that some people have high alpha waves um, who have insomnia. Um, and so even though the brain is asleep, there's still a lot of alpha wave activity going on in the brain. And it's, it's thought that sort of the, the, the busy brain of during wakefulness kind of creeps into the, the brain that's trying to get to sleep. And so the presence of those alpha waves um, is sort of uh, keeping you awake, if you will. Okay. Okay. Got it. So what's, what's next for the, uh, the research in REM sleep? What are you looking at right now? And what are you hoping to figure out in the next year? So as I mentioned, we're really interested in the in the relationship between REM sleep and future degeneration. So what we're working on is um, trying to to figure out why are the 
the parts of the brain that cause REM sleep so vulnerable to the degenerative process that underlies, for example, Parkinson's disease, because those cells that that are associated with REM sleep seem to die off, and then you 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 move while you're in REM sleep, means that, that that there's something about those cells that make them vulnerable. And if we can understand what makes those particular cells so vulnerable to to degeneration, we might be able to number one stop that process from killing those particular cells, but even more likely from invading and killing other cells in the brain that 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 are associated with uh, the cognitive changes in. Parkinson's and the dementias. Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. So what's the best way for folks to learn more about uh, your work and maybe get in contact for collaboration? Um, you can go to www.peverlab.com. Okay. And how do you spell Peaver? It's P-E-E-V-E-R. V-E-R. Okay. Well, very good. Great. Well, John, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, it's been really interesting. I appreciate it. My pleasure. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, but we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.